0: Hello, my name is Adam Eaton. Welcome to episode 99 of Hypnosis Weekly. hypnosis friends and a very warm welcome to hypnosis weekly. So today is a special edition and I'm just going to give it a small introduction. We're going to have none of our usual features. Um, So for the the second year in a row, um, I hosted a live panel Q&A session on the Friday night of the UK Hypnosis Convention, um, our, our Friday night live panel session. Um, this year we filmed it um, and I've added it to my YouTube channel if you fancy watching it as well as listening here. Um, but this year our panel comprised of Jürgen Rasmussen, Kate biven Marks, uh, Frederick Marr, um, Alberto Della Sola and Freddie Jackwin. Uh, we took questions from members of the UK Hypnosis Convention Facebook group in addition to a couple that were posed on the night and it was greatly received we had some wonderful and varying insight from those panel members and we had a lot of fun into the bargain as well so here is the footage Um, it's recorded live in front of an audience of approximately 150 people who were attending to the uh, attending the convention Um, um, and that's it that's all you're going to hear from me in addition to that Um, um, I'll be back soon with our 100th edition yes next up um, our centenary edition Um, um, enjoy this So right on cue. Thank you everybody. Thank you for being here this evening. Shuja, are we starting? So we're online, we're live. Welcome to Friday Night Live at the UK Hypnosis Convention.
1: Thank you, thank
0: you. So um, uh, our panel edition. Thank you for doing that so, so spontaneously. <laughs> I thoroughly appreciate it. A a, a massive thanks to you all for being here, uh, um, for for spending your time uh, here this evening with this this edition that we're going to do, our panel. We have a bunch of questions, uh, and we we kind of asked the world uh, what kind of questions they wanted to ask of our panel, so we've got a bunch of those. Um, Additionally, we're going to open things up every now and then, so there's going to be some freestyling opportunity. If any of you have any of those kind of taboo questions... Now Jurgen is desperately spoiling for a rumble.
1: <laughs>
0: he wants provocation and so on. I purposely sat next to Freddy in order that we can rein him in.
1: <laughs>
0: th- so everybody's gonna get three minutes, three minutes, uh, uh, three minutes to answer each of the questions, and then they cut off and it will and it will pass on. So we're gonna go through a number of the different questions, first of all, that have been set, that have been spoken about online. And, um, and ask them. But first of all, I think we ought to be giving a very warm welcome to, to all of our panel members. Um, I've already mentioned him, my brother, from another Norwegian mother, Jürgen Rasmussen, everybody. As a very wonderful Dr. Kate Bevan-Marx. Each year at the UK Hypnosis Convention, the only other man that wears a bow tie. We kind of take it in shifts. It was his turn today, it was my turn yesterday. Frederick Marr, everybody. <laughs> the Brazilian bombshell. That is Alberto. Put your hands together for Alberto. Himself. Last year, last year we had Anthony on the panel, this year we have Freddie. <clears throat> Two years time, I've booked great-grandpa, Jack <laughs> for the panel. Everybody, Freddie Jack Okay, so I'm going to start our three minutes up. Um, I'm with the first round of questions, we're going to start at the far end with Dr. Kate. First of all, our question to kick things off. What therapeutic issues do you like working with most of all? What type of clients give them, give you guys the most professional excitement? So, do
2: I get
1: a second warning?
2: So, Kate,
0: oh. yes, you will. Yay. You're going to pass the mic. Or you're going to pass the duchy on the right-hand side.
1: You see <laughs> you? Um, Over to you, Kate. It's
0: not actually working.
1: It's not on. Our
2: there Isn't it?
0: Hello? Hello? No, it isn't. You're right. Hello? It is now.
2: Now, I often get told that whenever I speak via a microphone, I instantly almost send people into hypnosis. So feel free to do your best to stay alert just for a little while so you get to hear everybody else's answers. What I like working with the most are the really awkward clients. And I seem to get the most awkward clients when I do the work that I do in hospital. So I seem now to be getting referrals from consultants and from some of the teams that I'm training. And where I thought initially we'd be doing joint clinics and I would be watching them use the techniques that I've taught them, no. It's a case of, oh, this patient's really, really difficult. Let's give them to Kate. So I've had the most challenging, difficult clients in the last couple of years that I have ever had in my career and it's probably the most enjoyable. Because seeing people come from some really, really profound health issues and get the benefit from hypnotherapy is absolutely amazing. I like working with my regular patients and my regular clients but the really challenging cases that I've had in hospital, even in critical care where truly, every word that you say, you can see it happening on the monitors. The beeps change. So so that sort of environment, it's a rare privilege to be working there and it's really, really rewarding to be working in that environment. So that's my my area. Probably about three minutes.
0: Um, I'm nearly at two. I'm happy for, that, for it to be premature.
1: <laughs> wow!
0: <laughs> so, some early heckling from Freddy's there. I'm happy to the mic.
3: So, um, um, Frederick. Frederick, your three minutes commences now. Adam, thank you. Um, I, I'm in private practice, so people sort of find their way to me. I. Uh, Other uh, counselors and psychologists and stuff that are in practice in in the area where I am in in South Carolina are also pretty familiar with what I do. So I find that uh, although I'm not in like a hospital setting where people are giving me difficult cases, um, other counselors will send me like their cases that were very um, hard to work with. And so I always like it when someone comes in and things are a bit unusual. I did a presentation today on treating conversion disorder where there's... Uh, a body effect to an emotional issue. The girl I talked about had a uh, her throat constricted when she tried to talk, and she was unable to um, uh, to speak for six months. I've had people with seizures that are psychogenic that are not um, physically caused, and I really like those clients. It's a it's a challenge. Also, people that come in in interesting life settings. I had a woman who came in that said, "You know, I've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's," and I'm like, "Why? I, I really can't help you with that." And she goes, well, I know you can't make the Alzheimer's go away, but can you help me handle it better, getting into it? And I went, yeah, you know, really, I can. Like that would be really good. Um, I've had a couple of clients um, recently with terminal diagnoses, um, cancer, and, uh, and then another one has a degenerative neurological disorder. And again, you know, you can't turn that around. But the question is, can you help? Can you help this experience to be better? Um, I love pain relief uh, clients where someone comes in and they're in just extreme physical pain and you can see um, the level of change and how much difference it makes. So those sorts of things uh, really are my my favorite clients. When it's a little bit of a challenge. It's a little bit of something different. Um, I'm, I'm frequently accused of being premature, but I, I guess I'll... <laughs> i sort of pass the mic along down since I'm out of answer, but, you know, we, we appreciate my, your p- candor. <laughs> yeah,
1: I right. yeah, yeah.
3: like to be honest, and if people will drink more, I'll be more
0: smart. Here you go. Alberto, your three minutes commences
4: now. Well, um, there are two types of clients. The clients I like to work most when they call, they are usually the anxiety, because I've had my issues on anxiety and I remember Carl Rogers talking about empathy And it's easier for me to get attached to that, those people that have anxiety But, however, although I'd rather working with anxiety The cases that I liked most were the spirit ones I live in, uh, in Brazil And there's a lot of mysticism and esoterism and candomblé and all these kind of things and I have had some clients which could call which they said that they were seeing ghosts and that they were talking to a spirit and I've done exorcism sometimes in the clinic and I am agnostic I am materialistic and agnostic and it was quite funny to see those clients in that perspective. They knew I was agnostic. And one of them had uh, what they called a trickster spirit or something like that. And I had to do mesmerism. It was quite annoying because when I started the Alm induction, I thought it was going to be just like psychology, what I'm used to. I started doing the Alm induction, and the girl opened her eyes and said You need to do something else Because he's touching my, my eyes and, and she started to talking to the to his spirit Of course at that moment I was sure she was a schizo-paranoid and That she was talking to something that didn't exist But I couldn't be one more person to tell that So I started to do mesmerism I said that I would do Something energetic which could go straight to her chakras and make rebalance. I talk about the articles and that rebalancing would be great. And when we talk, when you use your energetic thing, we don't need to talk. So the trickster spirit could talk anything he wanted. So although I loved working on anxiety, using submodalities modalities or talking and using this. Concepts of ghosts and spirits which are in Brazil. 15, oh, I don't know if they are 15 doing. seconds. Uh, okay. I like here
5: <laughs> Brilliant Jurgen,
0: your time starts now. Thank you.
5: Um, I don't really have that much of a preference anymore really. I am um Back in the day, when I first read Frogs at the Princes and I started studying Ericsson, I, I read about the impossibles practice, and I thought, that sounds really, really cool, to try to work with the clients that no one else has succeeded with, and um, I started doing that at age 21 uh, with a no-pay, no-change policy. It's a great way to go broke uh, pretty, pretty fast, <laughs> uh, but it's also really, really useful, and. Um, I remember when I released my first book, Provocative Hypnosis, John Grinder told me, you know, you realize what you've just done? You're you're going to get swamped with the most weird, outrageous cases for, like, ever. And that's been at least partially right. So uh, I I like experimenting with the stuff that you're not supposed to be experimenting with, uh, the stuff that's supposedly impossible. For example, a few years ago, a guy called me from uh, from Russia and said, "You know, I'm I'm gay. i like to be straight. W- would you work with me for this?" And I said, "Sure." This was a no money, no change. It's of course, completely politically incorrect, and, and and everyone would say that it's impossible. And and uh, he was actually bisexual. So, so so he said, "Well, you know, after the sessions, he, he liked women a little bit more, but he's still just as gay." (Laughter) um, but it was a fun exploration to do. But, but these days, I kind of prefer to just see regular clients. And uh, if I had to pick, I would say anger clients. I think a few people know how to work with them effectively. And it's, it's one of those topics where if, if you help like, one family member who has rage issues, uh, it really impacts the whole family like, for generations to come. So uh, it's one of the few topics where, like, family members write me and say, "Look, after my father saw you five years ago, you know, our family became a nice place to live." So that's uh, that's a cool topic. Great,
0: thank you very much, Jürgen. <laughs> Freddie, over to you.
6: Well, amnesia. Sorry, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> No, I, I, as you know, I, I don't even like people. So, so I hate working with people. No, I love it. And I love every person that comes through that door is different. You know, my sister in law, I was seeing thousands and thousands of people for smoking. And my sister in law asked me once, don't you get fed up for saying the same thing over and over again? And it was a fair question because my um, smoking stuff is pretty much the same for everyone. But I said no, because every person that comes into my office comes in with their own story. And I love stories. Everybody that comes in has their own little story to tell. And I can sit there for three quarters of an hour and I can listen to that story, and I love it. And it doesn't matter whether I'm working with someone, like a kid with with dental phobia, or a woman in her 70s with claustrophobia. For me, each person that's there the problem they have is a big problem in their life. It doesn't matter if they're doing heroin or if it's just anxiety. For the person sitting in a chair, that is their whole life. And so everyone is as important to me. I don't care if you think, well, it's nail biting, it's not that important as heroin. Of course it is to the person who's a nail biter. So I absolutely love the work. And I was saying to someone the other day, you know, I've been doing this for the first part 30 years, and I haven't worked for 30. And that's how I look at it. And I hope I'm never going to work again. You know, because I don't see this as work. This is just joy. And everyone that comes in has a story, and, I, and it, it's just great. So and I can't say that there's anything I particularly work with. You know, like Frederick, you know, when someone takes someone out of chronic pain, that's a magical moment. But is it any more magical than taking someone out of a drug problem? Or taking someone out of an anxiety that for years? And some years ago, I was saying, I had a lady come to see me in her 70s. She'd had claustrophobia her whole life. And she said to me, it blighted her life. She said, married a, a child of a sweetheart. They had a wonderful life. He had a brilliant job. They had all this wonderful social life. Um, but she couldn't do any of it. She came not see me in her 70s. Her husband had passed away. She came not see me. And she walked out of that office without that fear. And I remember thinking to myself, I wish I'd met her when she was 20. I'd only been about 10. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wish I when she was twenty. And then lo and behold, the next day, the first client that came in was a 20-year-old girl with claustrophobia. It was almost like, well, have someone. You know, so it's all joy for me. I love everything we do. And as I said, there's no one that's more important, no problem 15 that's more seconds. exciting. Um, for me, taking someone out of a problem is just the most magical thing we can do as human beings. And we have a brilliant tool called hypnosis that can do it for us.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it, 258.05. He's not premature. Woo!
0: <laughs> <laughs> so um, this time around, we're going to start with, with, with Frederick and end and, and with Kate, so uh, everybody gets a full round. We I mind passing that down to, to Frederick? So this time out, um, our question was, c- uh, conversely to this, this particular question, while we're bedding ourselves in, is there a type of client or issue that you are not so
3: keen to work with? Um, and if so, please explain. Frederick, over to you. Well, after Freddie's answer, it's kind of hard to say that there is. Um, <laughs> that was very nicely put. I, I mean, there are some where it's, there is that repetition, like with the Stop Smoking clients, but you're absolutely right everyone has a unique story and they all end up being good to work with um, I really don't tend to have clients that I don't like I I've occasionally had very rarely someone who would come in always our work is a partnership between the client and us um, but where they they're trying to do their job and my job and that becomes again somewhat more problematic and difficult But It's always a matter of working with the client, helping them to get where they need to be. Sometimes it's not even a matter of the beginning of helping the client to change. It's a matter first of helping them to get to the place where they can begin to change and then helping them to change. Um, But in general, my practice is very busy. I enjoy my clients, and I, I don't really have clients I don't like, so I'm real happy about that. Great, thank you, Alberto, <clears throat> over to you.
4: There are some clients I don't see, and probably because I graduated in psychology. So, as I graduated psychology, I use it work way of psychology, and to me, hypn- hypnotherapy. psychology but that's another discussion and I don't want to start a fight now as the provocative guy is you and not me but the kind of client I'm not so familiar to work with are pain control because I have a friend who is a physiotherapist and he works with hypnosis too and there might be some issues which are physical and I don't know how to explain how to manage so, of course, if someone asks me to help me with this kind of pain, a friend or a family na- member, of course I help. But f- professionally speaking, I'd rather working with what I studied all these years, which is psychology and hypnotherapy. That's, that's it. I have a bonus for the next one. Great. Thank you very much, Alberto. Jürgen, over
5: to you. What? I, I would say I, I like most of my clients, but on occasion, I'll see someone I generally don't like, and if I generally don't, don't like them, I have a tendency to send them home. Uh, I, I think that's fair. Uh, send them to someone else I don't like. You know, double pleasure that way. Uh, it's it's not so much about client type, really, but I, I prefer not to... Like, if I sense that someone is there primarily to please someone else, someone else's agenda, I have a tendency not to take them on. I think that's just good ethics. Um, If people are part of the psychiatric system, I have a tendency to be very, very cautious. Uh, if, If people are on psychiatric drugs, I have a tendency not to work with them while they're on the drugs. Because... You know, if something happens to them, um, your ass is in the firing line, as as the person who's not the psychiatrist. Um, people who are part of like anxiety groups or these like victim groups, in a sense, I've I've noticed that it it can be a challenge to help people change something where you know their their social life and their identity is tied up to the problem that they claim they want to solve. And I've seen a lot of people who have quit the groups and almost spontaneously released their issues just by doing that. So uh, those types of things. Psychiatric drugs, uh, groups for the most part. Uh, Often people who are on welfare, at least for the specific symptom that they are on welfare for, I have a tendency to often not work with. And uh, I think that's about it.
0: Great. Thank you very much, Jürgen. Freddie.
6: Um, I honestly can't think of anyone that I don't like. Strangely enough, some people you take to more than others. You know, some people you, you gel with better. But in general, you know, I, I, maybe that's part. I see that as part of my my goal in that room is to try and make them laugh at some point, which I have a tendency to do, and uh, you know, and try and get. That sort of something going. Just popping your hand up so it's not covering that bottom I'm bit. On the cover of the bottom, that's yeah. it, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story about a guy that came and sent me who did. Um, he just, I must have been having a bad day, but this guy came in, he had a, he, he had a fear of dying, anxiety, he'd for like 10 years, so he wasn't working, he hadn't got a girlfriend, he was just a miserable git to be honest.
1: With you. <laughs>
6: <laughs> anyway. So I I listened to him and I I worked with him for the first session and he was a great subject, you know, everything, everything going. And he went, he he felt a lot better and anyway, he came back to the second session and he went, oh, you know, I felt better but, you know, and he went, oh, God. So he said, he had a fear of dying. So I said to him, I said, I'm going to tell you something. I said, you will not like it. I said, I've got to tell you. He said, what? I said, you're going to die. He went, please, please don't say it. But I said, you are. I said, I'll tell you something else, so am I. It was exactly the same age with me, this guy. I said, I'll tell you something else, so am I. I said, I- you're going to worry about it for the next 25 years and you're going to die. I'm not going to worry about it for the next 25 years and I'm going to die. Either way, we're both going to get there. I said, so you might as well do this session with me and let me sort this thing out for you you know it just you know it might have been a, not the best approach, but that day I wasn't having a good day and, uh, So in general I, in general I'm quite nice.
0: Thank you very much Freddie
2: How can I top that? Um, I think there's two things there's the type of client that I don't like to work with now and if there's one thing that's not on my favourite list it's the unmotivated client it's the client that thinks that you're going to wave a magic wand and do it all for them I truly had a client a while ago who came into the session and said what she wanted to work on And then she said, well, um, I'll leave it with you, and I'm just going to go and do some shopping, and I'll be back in an hour. And I'm thinking, what are you leaving with me? And she actually thought that it wasn't that she thought she could take her mind out of her head. It was that she thought that somehow, just by giving me this challenge, it would miraculously happen while she went to Boots. So I think that was quite curious. And then there's the type of client that I used to not choose to work with. The ones that were a bit odd. And very early on in my career, I had an inquiry. in fact it was really right at the start of my career, for a guy who wanted to get over his knicker fetish. And I thought, you're having a laugh, really. Is it a real thing? So I referred him to a male colleague, and actually, it was really interesting to hear back because the guy was the youngest only male out of 11 children. And his mother, bless him, was quite frugal. So he had all the hand-me-down girls' knickers for the whole time he grew up. So when he actually became an adult, he decided, well, study. if I'm going to have knickers, I'm going to buy the most expensive flipping knickers I can. So he went to all of the luxury lingerie stores and bought a whole load of knickers. So I, w- I would now work with that sort of client, but early on then I chose not to. Oh, that's it. Thank you very much. I'm still
6: wearing knickers oh, yeah. to this day. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you can tell <laughs>
0: We can tell by the way you walk. (laughs) Okay, so we have a a different question, a new question. Uh, A really different vein of question, this particular one. So, um, as we appear to be seeing a steady increase in stories regarding hypnosis in the media, printed articles, radio intervals, uh, interviews, and television shows, and also that there continues to be an increase in reality shows, do you think that it would be a benefit to have a show focused on hypnotic change work as opposed to stage or comedy shows and second of all what format would you choose so there's a, cra- uh, a question from Craig Bagley starting with you Alberto let's hear your answer
4: well at first I must say that I love the stage and the comedy and when we think, why we study hypnosis? Why did we start to think about hypnosis? We always remember Pussiger and the somnambulist guy. Why? I, I, I'm talking about that because it's very hard to increase the interest on hypnosis without getting into magic. I guess everyone, almost everyone that goes into hypnosis starts with the idea of magic and that's what the stage gives you. Of course you can have a good stage thing or a bad stage thing you can have Darren Brown pushing things pushing people from the buildings which is a controversy (laughs) and although I liked on Netflix and but if you ask me, would be good to have a change work? R- I do think it would be good for the community. Because although the magic started it all, all the myths started with the magic too. All the the lack of confidence of giving away the secrets. The, the fear of getting into a state, a different state of the mind. The somnambulism. So, I do think that it would be awesome to have a reality show about not only hypnosis but especially about change, especially about change work. Like some, group, I, I guess it's better to use that in sports. I although it would be great to have people showing their then lives and how they wake up and go to the bakery and they relieve anxiety it would be interesting not so because we need to think it's a reality show so <laughs> I think if it would be sports and people that are competing with each other in sports and using their minds mindfulness and Self hypnosis and all this kind of thing, it would be great. And. <laughs> great. Thank you very
0: much, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jürgen. <All right>. Okay. <laughs> if
5: you can not cover up the bottom bit. Yeah,
0: Thank you. Don't cover up the bottom Great. <clears throat> well, um,
5: speaking as a guy who has like one foot in the meditation world and one foot in the hypnosis world, uh, we have Darren Brown pushing people off buildings. Yeah. The, the Meditation World has the Dalai Lama, and it, it seems like we have an image problem uh, in terms of yeah. how, we're, uh, how we're perceived. I mean, there, there's a stretch between the Dalai Lama and Manchurian candidates and uh, Svengali and, uh, and stuff like that. Um, Paul McKenna did something a few years back. He, uh, he did a show where he would work with people with, you know, phobias and people Tourette's syndrome, and uh, I thought that was a good show. Uh, it was really well done. So, so I think a show that kind of shows some dramatic stuff, like like for example, phobias, compulsions, allergies, would be really cool. Like when I do seminars, I love to do allergy demos because they're they're outside of most people's maps of what's possible, and uh, often quite easy to do. So I think something like that if we could do something like allergies for example which is like outside of the map of like what CBT people think is possible, what meditation people think is possible that could uh... that could do something cool outside of that having been on TV a few times I think uh... sometimes it looks as if to get a job in the media you have to have bad ethics like it's a uh, yeah. They're often not trustworthy, and you have to have really good frames and really, really good deals to not get screwed over. So, uh, yeah. Spot
0: on. Thank you, Jürgen. to you, Mr.
6: Um, um, <laughs> uh, Freddie. Over <coughs> to you, Freddie. Okay, well, there was, was a good TV program on a few weeks back about placebo and pain and placebo. Um, that was very good a proper bit of research, they were talking to people who were doing research in universities, so it came across as a proper piece of TV, a proper bit of reporting. Uh, we don't have that, and we can see Paul McKenna, I mean any of us, if we spent a week, we could get half an hour or an hour of really quality change work, you know, if, let's say we saw, even if you were really rubbish as a hypnotherapist, they could make that look like you are a god because they're going to pick out the best bits, as they did with Paul McKenna. What we need, and I'm not saying it's just because the man's sitting next to me, is someone who is respected, who has gone through it, who is doing the research, to do it properly, and even if it says we're only getting 35% of people quitting smoking, we're taking, having taken out all of the, you know, the, 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 the uh, persona, the attitude, you know, the, the personality and we're still getting 35% compared to 3% for patches, yeah. that's going to be a bit of TV. But we need someone to do it properly and ethically. You know, it's, they've got to report what it is. And that way, we're going to get this, you know, get hypnotherapy out where it should be. Stage shows, yeah, they're good fun, but people still think, and it's, it's a bit like the guy who, used to, who, who was making a show out of cutting corpses up. He frees them, and he was doing a proper lecture but it was a show because he was using human bodies, you know, and stripping the skin off and doing all that stuff. I don't know if you saw him. And it sort of, it sort of lessens the worth of it, you know, when, when it becomes a show. We do need, you know, for us to lift us up. but we need someone like Adam. I'm just saying because he's sitting next to me. Because he's got the words, he's got, already got enough research, he, he's, it's, he, he's got that kind of mind. You know, but it has to be done properly. And if we could do that, then that will lift us up. If we can say, this is the proper bit of research, we've put this many smokers through, this many anxiety people through, these people with phobias, these people with pain, and these are the actual results, and we make a proper TV programme like that, then that would be worth watching. And I think everyone will watch it, and everyone will start to think, yeah, this is something, it's not the dark arts, this is something that the medical world can look at. So that's my feelings on it. It can be done. The way it's done at the moment, the TV company is going to make it fun for them. And and make it a bit of TV. How much time I've got? Twenty seconds. Okay, I'll tell you quickly. I was asked to do a show for this. You you can have some extra time if
1: you want.
0: I was asked to do a show. A a good answer
1: warrants it. they
6: (laughs) They wanted to do a show on on fear of flying. Would I go down to London and do this thing? They filmed me walking on the roof, and they said, "You look great. You sound great. You know, it's great." So we sat around this table with his producer and he said, what are you going to do? I said, well, has anyone got a phobia? So this guy put his hand up, he's got, a, I've got a phobia. So I ran my phobia thing with him, took me five minutes. I said, where's the fear gone now? He said, I am not got any fear. So his producer said, well, are we going to make a film out of that? <laughs> and I shot myself right in the foot. <laughs> the guy, seriously, the guy who got the job, he took people to the airport, <laughs> scared the planes, showed them a picture, oh, I'm scared of planes. Put him on. Do you remember it? And he was useless. He was absolutely useless. And I didn't get the job because I have a bugger. So to, to make it? It has to be. So I I, 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 do think there's a value in that in doing it properly. And I think my, my, I'm going to put Adam up for the job. I think who's here for Adam doing the the he got the job.
0: Best answer of the night. <laughs> Over to you, Dr. Kate.
2: Thank you. You might not like my answer then. (laughs) Just setting it up for you. I think there's a big difference between what Freddie was talking about, which sounds as though it would work well as a documentary, fact-based, evidence-based, and the type of programme that we're more likely to see, which is going to be entertainment. Because TV companies are all about ratings. And if you speak to quite a lot of people, as Freddie mentioned, they they want to show. And one of the problems with that is that what makes something a good program can work against us as a profession. And if you look at things like the Embarrassing Bodies series, some people actually now worry about going to a doctor because of what they've seen some of the psychology-type programmes where you've had celebrities bearing all have actually put people off of going to see a psychologist or a counsellor because they've got a, a skewed perception. So if it's not done well, I think it could actually perpetuate myths rather than dispel myths. So I think then it's all down to the format. And of course, less people are likely to see a factual documentary, than they will something that's got Philip Schofield on, such as with your back in the room. So the stage side is always likely to be easier for production companies to to go with, whereas a factual documentary may have a higher cost proportionally, but it may also have a lower audience, so it would be less desirable. I think there is room for it but it's something that would be very difficult to manage. And Freddie mentioned about really good contracts. I think if anybody was going to do something like that, it really would be a case of making sure you've got everything tied down so that not only there you're reducing the reputational risk for the profession, but also you're reducing the reputational risk for the particular therapist who's going to be involved.
3: Great. Thank you very much, Kate. I think psychotherapy is inherently hard to dramatize. Um, If you think about straight-up dramatic shows, or even comedy shows, they'll sometimes show something about a practice, but actually showing a therapist of any stripe, a hypnotherapist or whoever, sitting and working with a client, um, doesn't tend to be too dramatic. When you have reality-based shows on there, I think those... Those sorts of shows tend to attract, um, as the clients, really damaged individuals that um, are deciding to go into a public venue, sometimes with some very significant problems, um, which are not even really necessarily the presenting issues, so, I mean the real issues. So I, I, I have real hesitancy about a reality-type show trying to depict any kind of psychotherapy, um, there was a book a few years back called Myths, Lies, and Downright Stupidity by a guy named John Stossel, who is was a reporter on 2020 um, on ABC in the United States. Um, and it's a great book. It, it's perfect for the bathroom because each chapter is like a page and a half long. And so you've know, you just got everything you need right there. And his, um, his chapter on hypnosis, though, was great. And I remember he starts it out by saying, um, just when I thought I could spot a fraud a mile away, hypnosis comes along and fools me. And he gives this great account of this woman in New York who's uh, actually a hypnotist, but she decided to um, have eye surgery using hypnosis as the only anesthesia. And he followed her along through the entire process. And just, you know, the little telling of it, like, that would work well as a documentary. If someone wanted to do a serious documentary, but I also think you're right... Um, that's the sort of thing that could have a build on like Netflix and over time a lot of people watch it if it's really engaging But it's not going to be like the Super Bowl and everybody tunes in to see it I remember when I um, I was invited on TV local TV a few years ago And they wanted to be sprung on me at the last minute They wanted me to actually hypnotize the the news anchor on the air and oh this the segment was going to be two minutes and 18 seconds long and um, I went okay, so I did this very nice um, in Dutch and you know, it went really well what I didn't know at the time was that the way they were shooting it uh, was they were pulling the camera in and out and doing weird like Dutch angles and stuff with it so that was like a huge credibility builder I, it's just problematic um, it's just problematic to try and dramatize this sort of thing maybe a straight drama show that kind of depicts it maybe a documentary I, I also you know stage hypnotists tend to be much maligned but when I do a presentation, I try to think of it as an entertainment event, and I and I know you do too. I, Adam, I saw you this morning, and you paced through that very, very well. And uh, the other speakers here, we have very good speakers, and it's not just lecturing information, but you're wanting to engage your audience and move through. I think uh, I think our stage um, our stage colleagues can actually help us if um, if they stay up on what's going on in the field and present things. In, in the best light that they can present it in, I think that there can be some benefit there. I also think that there's a reset that goes on with our, um, with our profession where I've seen a lot of articles on hypnosis over the last few years in popular press. They always start with the same place. Oh, it's amazing. We've done some neuroimaging and we found out this stuff was real. Really? since the article that said that three weeks ago and the one that said that a year before that and the one that started out the same way like a couple of months before that, it's as if every time an article on this comes up, it's you know, not just swinging watches anymore. Great, that's a great lead for your story. Every story, see, it's like Groundhog Day in the stories. They reset every time it resets. So um, it's a nice thought question, but I don't know that, we're, I don't know that the media will help us. Thank you very much, Frederick.
0: Thank you um, um, I really enjoyed this particular question because um, those of you that have, have have any kind of relationship within my career over the last twenty-four years. Uh, back in two thousand and six, I was on the BBC, uh, BBC One TV show um, Run for Glory, um, because I used to be a, a, an endurance athlete, um, um, and uh, and I worked with. Uh, I worked alongside Sally Gunnell and Steve Cram, training a bunch of guys to, um, I was was a psychological guy that was working with a bunch of guys with regards to them running a marathon and and helping them um, get through that journey. And one of the things, one of the challenges that we had was that that, um, they asked if I would do some hypnosis. And precisely as, as Freddie said, so we, 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 we had a situation whereby we, we had two chairs and we were doing the, the, doing the hypnosis sessions and there was, there was a bunch of cameras and lighting guys and sounding guys and so on, and we were doing the hypnosis. And, um, and they did precisely that thing which was, okay so, so basically what it is is you talking while another person sits there with their eyes closed. And that's not making awesome TV. And um, um, the the, the kind of portrayal, they want to sort of add some jeopardy to it in some way, um, which which ultimately hypnosis uh, and hypnotherapy doesn't typically tend to offer. So um, I I I think the media portrayals tend to be uh, quite inaccurate. Uh, For those people that saw the kind of scathing attack that I offered up to um, um, ITV's You're Back in the Room. Um, I had a big spat with both Keith Barry and Philip Schofield on Twitter um, that resulted in in, uh, Philip Philip Schofield changing his bio as a result of the things that I had said to him um, um, on Twitter. Um, And you know what? I grew up with Philip Schofield in in the broom cupboard (laughs) with Gordon the Gopher. And so I loved him, I was invested in him, and I ended up thinking, you bastard, Philip Schofield, for doing this to hypnosis. Um, um, Thank you for permitting me to get that off my chest. Our next question is going to be a different one. That was a lovely cathartic moment. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I have other stuff. I have other stuff
1: that I'm keen
0: to to dispense of. Um, So um, our next question is... Give us a brief case history of a fail, and what you learned from it, or how you turned it around. Freddie, we're starting with you this time. I'll wait to you. It's
1: tough,
6: that. I'm have to search my memory for a fail. <laughs> but I used to guarantee everything I did. You know, so it was a money back guarantee on everything I did and I used to do these groups for smoking Well, I'd see 150, 200 people at a time <clears throat> in 2006 I saw 5,000 people for smoking and I guaranteed it and it was only about 65 quid and you know there's more money if there's 200 people in a row and I had girls taking my calls and one day there was a call from a guy and he said uh, I came to see Freddie four years ago and I've started smoking again. He said, I've quit for four years and I've started smoking again. So the girl said, well, would you like to come and see him again? He said, no, I'd like my money back. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, bend over and I'll post it to you. But no, <laughs> uh, So, but you know, it sort of put me off the guarantee thing after that. But no, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously we, do, we, don't, we don't get 100% with everybody. But I think I was saying to Adam earlier, you know, I have people ring me up and they say, you know, I came to see you, and, and they apologise, which is a very strange thing to do. I've taken money off them, they come to see me, you wouldn't apologise to your plumber if he, you paid him and his, your tap was still leaking. And yet they phone me up and they say, I'm sorry, Freddie, but I've started smoking again, or blah, blah, blah. And the only reason they can be doing that is because when they were with me, they must have known that I really wanted them to be okay. You know, actually I can't think of any other reason why they'd apologise to me. So I can't off the top of my head think of, you know, many failures or how I turned it round. Obviously, if people want to come and see me again, and sometimes they they just know it's a blip. And often, quite often, you can turn it round on the phone, especially with something like smoking. They say, I've started smoking again, and I say, well look, you know, just take five minutes out, have a ceremonial last cigarette sit quietly for five minutes, think about all the things we did, you know how easy it was to quit, you know, they, they quit for months, I said, it, you know, you know it's not an addiction, and just think about it and then do it. And I rarely get another call from that person, because no. I believe they do it. So, you know, we aren't going to get 100%, but we get such good results. And I know, you know, it's all anecdotal, um, but this is just the greatest job. And Pete, and you can make life-changing um, Work with people, so I can't honestly think of anything else where I've had to turn something around. I offer people they can come back and see me again. I am a person that sees people generally once. It's not good business. I'm not suggesting you do it, but that's generally how I work. Um, So every now and again, someone can phone me and say, you know, it's. uh, But that's it, really. Great, thank you very much indeed, Freddie.
0: (laughs) So going to Kate now.
2: Sorry, Yogan. <laughs> just, just put that on ice. So there's, there was a guy who came into my consulting room a few years ago, and his wife had actually booked the appointment. That was in the days when I didn't do what I do now. But his wife had booked the appointment, and he, he came into the consulting room. Lovely guy, sporting life, tucked under his elbow. And he said, oh, so you're the lass that's going to stop me smoking, are you? And I thought, ah. Yeah, you can tell that challenge in the voice, can't you? I said, oh. And I don't know why I asked him, but I said, do you want to stop smoking? Said, no. Said, oh. So why are you here? Your your wife said that you wanted to stop smoking. Said, she wants me to stop smoking, but I don't want to stop smoking. Okay. So, I said, well, we, we can start the session there. Like no. No, she's sitting in the waiting room downstairs. I'm not going downstairs right now. Is there a back way out? No, it's just one set of stairs. So we had a choice. So either, I can see you've brought a paper. Have you read the paper? No. So you can sit here. I'm not touching the bottom bit, honest. Um, so you can sit here and read the sporting life for the hour. I don't mind. I can do some emails, do some work. It's fine. Um, Or we can chat about current affairs, the weather, price of bread in Tesco's, I don't mind. Um, Or is there anything else you'd like to work on with hypnotherapy? He says, well, I've heard it's really good for golf. Okay, it is. Yeah, tiger woods, etc. Have you got a problem with your golf? Yes, he said, my my puttings, easy. it's not as good as it could be. I'm losing focus. Okay, so we worked on his golf. His wife had already paid for the session. He went out happy as anything at the. End. He was actually a really good subject as well, and he went out really happy at the end of the session. The curious thing was, he phoned me up a few weeks later, by which time I'd already had quite a few referrals from his golf club because everybody noticed how good his putting was.
1: Absolutely.
2: And he said, "Do you stop smoking, Lark? i like, yes. Does it really work then? Like, if you want it to. I thought you didn't want to stop smoking. He's like, well, I did, but I didn't want her to make me. He actually came in and, to be honest, it took very little work because he'd already decided in his mind that he was gonna stop. It was just the ritual of coming for a session. But it, I learned a lot from that client and I still remember him very favorably.
1: Thank you
0: very much, folks.
3: <laughs> Frederick, over to you. Well, when I first started out and I didn't know anything, as opposed to now when I'm working and don't know a whole lot, um, the guy, you, you replicate what you what you learn, um, especially before you know what you're doing. And uh, the guy I worked with initially, um, where I learned all this, he did, he, I really think he was abusing clients with this, but he did these nine week long things to stop smoking, which was, oh my God, boring. And I, I, I learned several things from that. The one I learned is no one ever quit until the ninth session. And so if you, it's suggestion, if you tell people it's going to happen at a certain time, it does. I had a guy that I'd worked with for like four sessions. I'm bored out of my mind. The guy goes, you know what, I don't want to quit smoking. I I really like it. And I'm like, well, okay, I mean, what do you want to do? And he goes, well, I'm a salesman. Can you help me with sales skills? And I went, sure. So we worked on being comfortable in like sales situations and that kind of thing. Did that for a couple of sessions. He comes back in and goes, you'll never guess what happened. And I said, what? He goes, I quit smoking. (laughs) And because I was young and green, I thought about that for a long time, and I I realized as long as you keep someone focused on their problem, even by coming back in session after session, the problem perpetuates. But as soon as the guy focused on something else, then the problem went away, and that's a principle that I've learned with a lot of different clients. I do stop smoking now in a single session, by the way, um, and very good at it. Um, first, I cut it to six um, because I'm dumb, then I cut it to three, and then I was like, I'm just bored with this, I'm going to cut it to one, and, and it worked totally well. I have a standard sort of thing that I do. Every client gets treated very in a very personal way, but I do some common things when I'm treating common issues because, uh, you know, it's not my first radio, and I, I sort of know how this should go. And so, when I'm doing some things with a client, for example, an anxiety client, and it ought to work, but it's not working. You do something that should work, usually works, always works, didn't work with this client, then that's my opportunity to draw back and go, okay, what do we have going on here? Something is going on here with this client that is very, very different. And so a lot of times it'll be doing sort of standard things for stress or anxiety and it doesn't work, and then the client who didn't disclose this earlier will come back and say something like, um, you know, there's some kind of giant horrific trauma in their past and that kind of thing. Oh, okay, so that's that's like a giant hurricane, a of problem offshore that you didn't tell me about, um, and then we go back in and we're able to deal with it. So I do find that it's useful to to look at stuff that should work but doesn't, and then to loop back in on it. Um, then there are times where uh, I I wanted it to go better, but the client's actually happy. I had a um, I had a 16-year-old girl come in, she's moving like she's 80 years old, two years earlier she had fallen off of a skim board at the beach, she had this just tremendous racking chronic pain um, on the, you know, the subjective units, one to ten scale, she said she was at an eight, she's moving like she's 80, she looks like an eight. And um, I worked with her actually over several sessions. And. Um, I managed to get, I, the pain would go away completely for a few hours following the session. I was never able to get it to totally stick, but I got her to where she was like at a living level of a three. And she was happy, family was happy, everybody was totally happy except me. At the time, that was, I I regarded that as my greatest failure and had not been able to turn it around. At this point, I actually think there would be, if, if that client was happening today instead of, you know, 10 years ago, I think there are other things that I could go back through. And loop. But the main thing to me is when things don't go the way we expect, to, to sit there and to reason and to look at it and to see what have I learned about suggestion in the human mind in this particular client and how these different things operate. And I'm always learning from those things. I don't tend to really view any of them as failures at this point. Um, and my client's usually successful, so. 10 seconds. There you go. <laughs> <laughs>
4: uh, I've had some failures, um, which are different from one each other, stutterers that didn't stop stuttering. But one special case that I remember, I was doing psychotherapy under supervision in my graduation in psychology. And there was a girl, she was 16 (coughs) years old. And when she came into the office she started to talk about her life and her life was completely miserable. She, was, she had, had problems with violence in the favelas, drug dealers, probably some of the violence that some of you might not even imagine that happens in countries like Brazil. And when she started to talk her story, That she tried to commit suicide two times, and that her daughter, her sister, died because of drug dealers two days before, and that her house was invaded by the drug dealers in the favela. That was so much information in kind of five minutes. And I was inside the university, I said, Oh, I have a therapist. Which is his specialty, is your case. I wasn't ready to do anything at that moment. I remember Carl Rogers, I always mention the humanistic approach and empathy, but there's a moment that you go so deep inside the other person that you can't do anything because you become part of the problem. And, but at that moment, I, I just wanted to start to cry and start running. Oh, she needs a therapist, you know? And I remember, I was the psychologist in charge. So I need to do something. So at that moment, she started to tell all those, those things. I just stopped and said, oh, you need one, someone that specializes in your case. And I just made her wait. I didn't want her to suicide I was really worried about that. And I just called my supervisor. And I told her in advance, oh, be careful. That's the story. <laughs> go there knowing beforehand. Otherwise, you will have problem. And then I just said that. And she did the treatment with her. And I found it much better. Because that first time I saw that empathy is important. But you can't go so deep. Thank you. No, no, no. Thank you.
5: Yeah. Um, I've had plenty of failures, like a lot of failures, and, and the truth is, everyone has. Uh, it's just a question of whether they know it or not. So, let me give you a, a, a big picture thing of of what I've learned from having had a lot of failures. Um, I think when you see a client, like when you do a session, there, there's four possible outcomes. Like, you, you can get a complete change. You can get a partial change, whether it's large, medium, small. You can get no change. And you can get, hey, my symptoms are worse. Like these are the four possible outcomes you, you can get. Now if, if you sell the confidence game, and if you do the thing that they sell in many hypnosis schools where they go, that's easy, we do it all the time. Like, yeah, if, if that happens, you're you're cool. If, if the client improves a lot or moderately or maybe even a little, you're maybe still cool. If the change is small or no change or worse, you've lost all credibility. And the chances that perhaps you'll even hear from the client or, or have the feedback to correct your course is small. So. One thing I have learned is you, you have to frame what you do in the relationship in such a way that you open for rapid change, but that you also have maximum credibility, or still have credibility, if you don't get those changes. I'll add one piece, too, yeah. if I have time. You do. Uh, if if someone comes in to me after a session and and, and they go, well, nothing's changed, you know, I, I get that type of attitude, I, I, I usually look at them and I say, Okay, so you and I as a team have a challenge. I have to find some other way of engaging with you. That's my part of the equation. Your part is that you have to find a different way of listening, a different way of engaging, so you're actually able to learn and see something new. That's your job. That's our task as a team. Are you up for the challenge? And I I wait for a congruent yes, because that, that brings them back into the loop. So many people ask, what do you do when you fail? And it's like, no, what do we do as a team? This is not a do-to process. This is a teamwork. This is a a collaborative. So how do you set the context? How do you frame? How do you create the relationship with the client so that the solutions emerges from that interplay between you? This is important. And if I have 10 more seconds, I'll go. Because this is a habit I, I used to do. Almost everybody exaggerates the results. We as a field have to be more honest. And uh, When I used to attend a lot of seminars with the big names, I developed this pesky habit. I would watch all the demonstration subjects that looked great on stage. I'd get their email, their phone number, and I would contact them later and say, hey, it's certain from the seminar. How is that phobia or whatever? And I discovered that quite a few of the cases that everybody were, were convinced were great successes based upon the stage were not, in fact, great successes. But nobody knows. Because nobody asks. And the trainer doesn't know. And unless you happen to know the person or bump into them or, or you ask them, you're not going to get the information. And, and, and everybody thinks that something that wasn't successful is. And nobody gets the word. So that's my little rant. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank
6: you very much. Yeah. Um, um, really a really, really
0: very important point, I think. Um, I'm, I, I'm kind of inclined to add, uh, in a kind of adjunctive capacity, there, that, that the value of reflective practice, um, um, you know, the, the, the vast majority of us are very aware of the value of experiential learning and standardized protocols for for kind of reflective practice and and theoretically we're we're kind of taught to be aware of that but I know very few Mm -hmm. hypnotherapists that actually engage in it effectively and really do uh, reflect upon what it is that they're doing and learn from it as a result um, and I- in particular with regards to things that may be considered a therapeutic failure in order that um, um, it not just be something that is an abject failure, in fact it becomes something that helps us grow and thrive and, and becomes of value to us um, so our next question what do you consider to be the three most important things to know about a client before commencing hypnotherapy. So we're over, starting with Kate once again. Away you go, Kate.
2: I think this will be quite a short answer. So the three most important things that I would like to know is really, firstly, what they want to achieve. and That's the real thing for me. Not necessarily what the issue is, because there's different ways of presenting the issue. But ultimately, what they want to achieve, where their end point is. And then you can go more into your goals and the SMART goals and you know, how they see that. And I also really want to know, and apologies to anybody who is contemporary, but I want to know why they're coming to see me. Because it rarely is because they want to achieve something. It's because they're more focused on what the problem is for them. So, how their problem is, not the label or a medical diagnosis, but how it affects them, what's going on in their world. And then the third thing is from a safety perspective, I really want to check that hypnotherapy is right for them. And it might be that they're contraindicated for a particular reason, or it might just be that another therapy would be more appropriate. So I find that that then would be my responsibility to explore with them whether it would ethically be better for them to go to that more appropriate therapy. It might be, of course, that they've deliberately (coughs) wanted to pick pick hypnotherapy for a specific reason. So giving them choice is also important for me. And that's my three reasons, my three
0: things. Thank you very much.
3: I really just have one thing that um, and I, I'll do an initial consultation with someone and answer their questions and within that they'll tell me all the things that are wrong and all their problems and that kind of stuff and usually if there's any giant red flag that's going to pop out. But by the time, um, and I also, I'm, I mean, I, I'm a licensed clinician, I'm pretty good at taking all comers. Um, if you're under care of a psychiatrist, that's fine. If you're on psychiatric medication, that's fine. If there's a medical issue, that's fine. Um, I have a license. I'm good to go. Um, but by the time we get down to getting started, there really is just one thing, and it, it's sort of my own version, um, not even modified very much, of, um, of Steve DeShazer, uh, Steve DeShazer's question from Solution-Focused Brief Therapy. I'd like to invite you to suppose that we have a great session today, and it goes really, really well. And we get done and you head out and you've got this lovely autumn evening in front of you, eventually tonight you go home, you go to bed, and you do go to sleep. And while you're asleep, a miracle happens, and everything that brought you here today gets magically fixed. But you don't know that it's magically fixed because it happened while you were asleep what would you notice tomorrow tomorrow night the next day what would you notice tomorrow that would be different that would let you know things have changed and then i start writing down their exact words and i will rework that into every process i do with them for the rest of the time that we're together because that's the clinical goal thank you for
4: there are some points that I always like to know about clients. And the first thing uh, is motivation and why they want to change, why they want to move. I like the idea of authenticity. People are conditioned to have their lives, they have lots of conditionings, and if you ask your client, "What do you like, what would you like to do today?" if you were not thinking about anyone else, just about you. And they don't know how to say that. They they don't know how to think about doing something that's not to please someone else. And I think that is authenticity, the motivation is very important. And I always like to build rapport very well. I think the interview is very important. Uh, for me, the interview before which we call anamnese I don't know in English if there is this word but for me the interview is not about filling the blanks it's much more to get connected Adam said today Adam mentioned Carl Rogers today about the centered approach therapy and I really like the idea of the connection and doing a good interview but uh and another thing the last point I always do as I love behaviourism. I like to understand behavior. I do what we call the function analysis I don't know if this is this term in English function analysis, which is understanding all the contingencies all the triggers of the that maintain the symptom during the day. I want to understand, for example, if someone smokes, that cigarette from the morning has a completely different aspect from the one in lunch or before getting stoned in <laughs> London. So, it's important to understand, so to me, I want to understand that person, what that person thinks. what the, How that mind works around what are their limiting beliefs, so that's it, connecting a lot. I love connecting and understanding the conditionings. I always work with the symptom as a behavior. So there must be some environmental issues or mental, cognitive issues that trigger that symptom. So we must discover that. Thank you, Alberto.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
5: As I said previously, I want to know that the client uh, is there of their own, you know, has their own reason for being there, uh, so to speak. And um, I, I really want to have an informed client. Like I, I want a client who's, who's committed and who's informed, meaning that he or she knows what they're actually signing up for. So I'll, I'll always ask them, you know, do you know anyone who's worked with me, or have you just seen the website? or? How did you end up here, and what are your expectations? And and if I say the word hypnosis, what pops up in your mind? And um, I I often say to them, look, hypnosis or change work is not surgery. You're not going to lie down and get fixed. This is an interactive process. You know, what I bring to the table matters, but what you bring to the table matters as well. And I'll describe that to them and I'll make sure that they understand that interactive-type frame and and that they're committed. Um, Sometimes I can have a client that just calls and says, you know, I'm just wondering uh, how much does it cost and where are you located? And I'll I'll say, it's way too expensive and too far away. (laughs) It's It's like, those are not the criteria. I don't work with people who think like that. You know, and they'll, they'll go, that's kind of rude. And I'll say, well, it's kind of lazy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I like,
5: if that's the best question you can ask... And, I like, and you haven't asked the most important question, and, and that is, what can I do to be the best possible client? Do you want to ask? So I, I throw the ball back at them. And uh, I, I, I just want to know that I have a committed, informed client who knows what he or she is, is signing up for. I've discovered over time, it makes life so much easier and simpler, and sessions are better and clients are happier and they refer more clients who think in similar ways, and that's that's a good deal.
1: Thank you, Ivan.
6: Well, The first criteria is that they're there because they want to be there. They're not there because their mum or their sister or their wife wants to be there. So that's the number one thing. And secondly, I want to know what they want. Because most people will come in, especially if they've been in counselling or other sort of talking therapies for years, they'll spend a lot of time telling you what they don't want. And without being rude, I want to get around to that question, what do you want? How do you want to feel an hour from now? A week from now? A month from now? A year from now? because we have a tool called hypnosis, can move you towards where you want to be very quickly. So, first question, they're there of their own volition. Secondly, what do you want? And thirdly, and it's only in certain cases, I was speaking to Helen or Brenner today, what, I watched a wonderful presentation, and if it's a medical problem or if it's pain, I want to know that they've been to their doctor and checked it out first. You know, I, I will never, someone come. I've got a headache, i had it for two weeks, I'm going to say, oh, we can live in it. So, those three things really. What do you want? And if it's a medical thing, then, you know, or pain, um, I want to know that they've been to their doctor and they've had everything checked. And then we get to work. But that's it really for me. It's not difficult. Okay? That's it. Thank you very much, buddy.
1: <laughs> so, we
6: are
0: uh, um <laughs> We gonna have a final question in a moment—the uh, the final one that was posted, that was that we that, that, that was chosen on. Um, I, I just wondered um, before we got to that whether there was any uh, burning questions or even uh, potentially controversial questions that anybody was keen to to ask at this moment. So, so uh, yeah, we've got a bunch. So, so I, I, I'll just go to Dan first, uh, Daniel. Um, um, D- D- Dan, do you, do you want us to let us know what your question
5: is? Certainly, yes. Gentlemen, lady, thank you for your knowledge and your time. My question was actually for Jürgen. I was interested in what you said about working with people with anger issues and rage issues and that families can benefit for generations from that. I agree. I was just curious to hear you say a little bit more about that.
0: Jürgen, have, have, have an additional three minutes answering that question, and, and, and we'll, we'll pick one of the other speakers to answer some of the other
3: questions.
5: Yeah. Um, I... I, I do you want to specify the question a bit more? or I'm not quite sure. I appreciate it, but I'm not sure. Yeah, no, quite of sure course. You...
3: I was going to ask you to
5: specify. <laughs> I don't know. And we can have this conversation later. Yeah. But I'm just curious about if there is a
3: protocol. You don't need to go down it in detail. But, you know, how you address somebody if they come in with anger and rage issues.
5: Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's, it's, it's a bizarre thing. Uh... What I noticed in, you know, in the books and the seminars and, and you know, people talk about phobias and pain and anxiety and stuff like that, relatively seldom do people talk about anger and rage issues. And if, if you think about, well, I don't think there's any dangerous emotions per se. I think there can be dangerous emotions if, if not handled skillfully. And if you look at, you know, cases of violence and domestic abuse and child abuse and stuff like that, anger very often is is a factor and 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 rage and um, so probably thirty thirty five percent of my clients are anger and rage clients and uh... my impression is that relatively few people have spent a lot of time working with it and kind of know what to look out for and how to set up the sessions and you know how to deal with people who have those particular issues so uh, I'm teaching a course on on Monday, post-conventional workshop. Shameless plug, but. Great. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, uh, you have um, um, Eugene, you had a
0: question. Yeah.
4: So, okay. thank you. We always talk about hypnotherapy. Uh, so the question is for everyone here, really. How would you differentiate or define hypnotherapy versus psychotherapy, and what would you know? But the difference between the two, because really, most of the time is hypnotherapy is defined by doing psychotherapy with an induction in front of it. So how would you define, how would you make, differentiate
0: between psychotherapy and hypnotherapy? Good question. So let's send that about that.
3: Frederick. The key idea is that emotion, not information, drives behavior. Most of our models of change, most of our change processes are cognitive change processes that are about thinking about things differently. What we do is not that. The brain responds differently in, I'll say a relaxed state or a more emotional state than in sort of a normal, calm emotion, cognitive range state. And the advantage that we have is that when, when people are in their conscious, cognitive, normal, normal, steady emotions, things are locked in and change is very difficult. But when you take someone to a place where emotionally it's a little bit off, the brain begins to respond differently, and the, the reality of change is possible. Um, the anterior cingulate cortex is highly involved in emotions of horror and trauma. Uh, talking about experiences of horror and trauma in waking state tends to intensify those emotions. When the ACC, that particular part of the brain, is more engaged, it tends to mute out or tamp down emotions of horror and trauma. And so by working with someone in a more relaxed state, which gives more ACC engagement, we can actually go in and mute down those emotions. Take something like a phobia. I'm afraid to fly. Oh, what happens when you get on the plane? Oh, my mouth is like sand and my heart beats like a hammer and my palm sweat. I'll say to the client, go ahead and make your palm sweat. Go ahead. I can't do it. Well, if you can't turn it on in my office, why do you think you can turn it off when you get onto an airplane? A cognitive therapist is gonna work with you to try and help you manage the experience so you can sort of talk yourself into being on the plane a little bit better. Um, We work with emotion, which is body experience. We rework how people feel, perceive, what happens with the body. My goal with the fear of flying is you walk on the plane, your mouth is moist, your heartbeat is normal, your palms are dry, and you're not even really thinking about it. That is nothing like what standard approaches to to psychotherapy do. Then, I mean, there are maybe 400 different approaches to psychotherapy, that's a ballpark number, but it's about right. Um, You can generally think of them as problem-focused approaches versus solution-focused approaches. A lot of the classical Therapy approaches are problem-focused. If I can only figure out what went wrong, then my life will be better. Sigmund Freud was great for that one. The guy thought everything was about sex and death. He was awesome for parties, but not so good for, like, you know, being your therapist.
1: <laughs> the problem follow- with insight is it,
3: it doesn't fix anything. Like, I can totally know that I've had this terrible phobia of driving ever since I survived that horrible wreck. I've got total insight. Still got the phobia of driving. Insight doesn't help. Reason does not lead to solutions. Change is an interesting thing. It's as if you're able to step outside yourself for a moment. To see yourself differently from another perspective, something emotionally shifts and it clicks and everything is different. And it happens not as a result of a long period of labor, but suddenly, emotionally, quickly. I usually see people six sessions rather than one, but my hat's off to you. Um, That kind of fast change is what we're after. That is completely different from models of psychotherapy. So we're taking advantage of the way the brain operates in ways that anything involving just kind of waking state conversation or sort of normal state conversation doesn't. By the way, I'm not into the state argument versus non-state. It's language that's handy. Um, but I hope that's helpful. Absolutely. Great. Thank you, Frederick.
0: <clears throat> do any of the other guys have any questions to answer that? Kate, Kate, do you want to have a go on to that? And then we'll, 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 we'll look at the other question that was had in the group. Oh, great, yeah.
2: I've just got a quick, brief, sort of, alternative perspective. Away from the science, because that was an awesome science explanation. I think, as hypnotherapists, we have more choice. Psychotherapists tend to be aligned to one or a certain approach. Whereas hypnotherapists, because generally we are so broadly trained, we can be integrative, so we can use different models and we can select the right model for our clients rather than making our clients fit our model, which is phenomenal for the clients. We can be eclectic, so we can bring other things in. We can bring in mindfulness. We can bring in all sorts of different things to work within that because we are creative, we are integrative. And then there's the element of pluralistic. So if in a session we want that model and that model and that model and adapt them so that they work seamlessly, we can do that. Whereas psychotherapy, you don't tend to have that flexibility nor the freedom. So I think there are fundamental differences and I think we're very, very fortunate as hypnotherapists that we have so much that we can choose from.
0: Lovely. Thank you, Kate.
6: <laughs> for me, the difference is that um, anyone in this country can call herself a psychotherapist. I can can call yourself a hypnotherapist. There is no governing body to say you can't do that. I'm not a psychotherapist. I'm a hypnotist. Um, I just happen to use hypnosis for helping people overcome stuff. I don't even think I'm a therapist. And I, so I start with the under, with the belief that I absolutely know nothing about my client. With my psychotherapy and things like that, you have to figure out what the, per, what the person's problem is. Then you've got to come up with a strategy for changing that. That's all in your head. You know, your understanding of this is what I'm going to have to work with. This is the tools I'm going to use to help them. I start completely different. I assume I absolutely know nothing about that person's problem. And I know nothing... Uh, the only person in my room I believe that has the answer to the problem and the, and the strength to overcome it and the resource to overcome it is the person in the therapy chair so that gets me out of it I have an ability to hypnotise people and get them out their own way and then we have a few tools you know, that we use to get to that, that underlying bit of programming for habitual stuff uh, we have a few other simple tools to deal with things like phobias, anxiety and stuff like that I, and so it makes it easy for me. It doesn't matter who walks through my door. It doesn't matter what the problem is. Provided they're there because they want to be there, and providing they want to change, and they know what they want, then I believe with hypnosis we can help them. I don't have to know about their history, I don't have to know about their medical problems. In fact, they start telling me about medical problems, I won't listen, because I'm not a doctor. And it's, you know, maybe you start asking about pills, you're in big trouble. So for me, as I say, that's the difference. You know, psychotherapists have to try and figure out the problem, and have to come up with a strategy to try and change it, I work the opposite way around. I assume I know nothing, but the client knows everything. That's just my thoughts.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much.
6: So um, we're going
0: to move on to our final question of the night, um, which is, what is, and, and it's a big one, what is your best piece of advice to perhaps a newer therapist? Like, for any therapist, what's your best piece of advice... For a therapist. So that is broad. Alberto,
4: we'll start with you. (laughs) Okay. The question is about hypnotherapy or just therapy? Um, About therapy or about your business
0: or about any kind of thing. Any kind of advice that you would give them related to hypnotherapy
4: and their business. Well, I wouldn't talk about business but I have said the word business
1: and I'm quite (laughs) of
4: connected to that word. I will talk a little about business. You should understand that although we work with change work, transforming lives, if you want to make that your living, you must deal with that as a business. So we must stop. When I studied psychology, I didn't learn how to even get authorization from the mayor to get my office. And when I studied psychology, they... Look at me as if I was a priest. As if I shouldn't get money for what I do. And I see the same mindset in the hypnotherapy world, in the change work world. And if you don't get professional, if you don't get into social media, if you don't get a nice website, you are going to fail. And I mean fail as quitting your passion. You could live by your passion. There are some people here that say that, oh, that's just, I just, I have another job. I just want to help other people. You are dishonest. Because if you really wanted to help other people, you would be traveling around the world. At least having, attending the best classes. Uh, you would be with the best people around the world. And so if you want to leave the passion, you should understand the rules. Uh, when you're in a game as business, um, ignoring the rules. This is stupid. You may not agree with the rules of the game, but ignoring them. Oh, I'm not into social media. I, I don't feel like having a website. You are going to fail. And if you want to be big, you must show it to people. People must know from the best from you. And always the last advice if I have time. Do I have time, ever yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, I I became famous in Brazil because I started teaching hypnosis on my YouTube channel. And my YouTube channel has 320,000 subscribers. Which is one of the biggest in the world. So I know what I'm talking about. And I started to teach many inductions how to do many things in hypnosis for free in my YouTube channel. And many people in Brazil said, oh... You are telling them the secrets. That's the first mistake people do in this world. Scarcity. You can't have a scarcity mindset. You must have an abundance mindset. You must deliver your best value in social media. You must create value, create content, a blog, a YouTube, Instagram. Show your best for the world. If you don't, if you can't do that, well, we need plumbers, we need engineers, we need doctors. We need other people doing other things, and they don't need to be on social media. That's my advice. Ah, well, it was a happy advice. Thank you very much.
5: I would say, view it as a craft. Like, really view what you do as a craft. Um, Put your heart into it, your soul into it. one thing that puzzles me um, because I, I often get questions from people where, where they say, you know, I'm you uh, what's the one course I can take or what's the one book I could read or like what's the five books I need and, and sometimes these people may be, you know, engineers or economists and they, they have a solid education in some sort of field But I ask them, look, if I said you to you, you know I think my passion is engineering. You know, what's the one book I could read? Like, what's the quick course before I begin to build that bridge? Uh, you know, what would you think? They say that that's ludicrous. I say, yeah, that that is kind of ludicrous. So a, a lot of people seem to have that mindset of, uh, you know, the the one book or or. Uh, like I'm, I'm often stunned, the of fourth I, I like reading, but, but when people say the one book, I think you should have read Erickson's work. You should read Barber and Spanos and, and know the, the state or non-state theories. You should know the history. You should, uh, you should do the experiments. Um, and and don't, don't follow anyone. I mean, people say, who should I follow? No, don't follow anyone. Don't have gurus don't believe anyone, like ruthlessly test everything uh, and question assumptions and, and, and do the work do, do the experiments um, and and t- team up with other people who also do the experiments and see clients and, and exchange exchange the information uh, have people around you who, who keep you as honest as uh, as possible I think um uh, but, yeah, when it comes down to it, like, really viewed as a craft. And, 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 I would, and I say to them, look, if you're just bored with a regular job and think that you don't really have to work, you know, don't do this. Don't, don't do it if it's not something you're willing to really, really do and take as seriously as any other profession. So,
6: yeah. Thank you, Jürgen. Great, I, you? I, I totally agree with Jürgen. You know, I make sure it your passion. Um, my science and nipped out, I think. That I was listening to his feet. Um, <laughs> he reads and reads and reads. He's devoured books since he was a child. you know. So he reads, he's very, very knowledgeable. Um, but, you know, getting back to Alberto, you know, if this is your life, then to, to be really to be really effective, you need to see people. And a lot of people, we say, well, I love the hypnotherapy, but I don't like to sell myself. You know, but what I say is this. The word sell originates from the word sellier, which means to serve. The Norwegian word sellier, which means to serve. Now, if you have a product or a service, and you do, that can enhance someone's life, and you get in front of that person, you do not sell it to them, you're doing that person a disservice. So you need to listen to Alberto. You need to listen to how you can get to as many people as possible. You know, and do good work. You know, so there's those two things. You know, be passionate about this. Learn. We're in a we're in a wonderful field here, because people want to help you. Ask the questions. You know, ask anyone and I'll help you. That's what I feel about this. You know, don't be stuck with one school. I'm this kind of hypnotherapist. Listen, learn. You know, this is my attitude. If you've got a, if you've got a technique or a protocol that's going to help my client, I am going to nick it off you. Because all that matters to me is the person in the other chair. I'm going to do everything I can to be as good as I can be to help that person. And there's a couple of of other things quickly. When you're working with someone, maybe this is true, maybe this is not, and Jürgen might disagree with me. When I've got a client in front of me, I hold this thought in my heart. I care about you, I want you to be well. It's a simple thought, I run it like a loop, I think. I care (coughs) about you, I want you to be well. And the other thing is, if you're going to be hip, doing street hypnosis, when you step up to do it, run this little loop. I'm a great hypnotist, you're a great subject. Now, and one quick other thing. As we start off in life doing this work, we're going to have our doubts. And I was saying to Adam earlier, one of my favourite quotes, an Erickson quote, he was working with a guy who had cancer of the jaw and he was dying. And he only had a few months left, but he was in agony. He didn't want to take any more morphine because he wanted to have the last few weeks with his wife and kids and be able to, be able to know what was going on. So Erickson worked with him, and he took this pain away. And someone said to Erickson afterwards, that, did you know you could do that? And he said this, he said, I had my doubts, or I had no doubt about was I could keep my doubts to myself. Now I tell you that in every one of my training classes, this is as hard to learn as it is to learn the techniques and the hypnosis. But it's really important. You know, when you step up, because Adam was saying earlier, you know, about the placebo effect. If you're doubting yourself, if you're thinking this person's not very bright, are they going to get it? They're not going to get it. So you, you have to learn to keep your doubts to yourself. So think, keep that in your mind. I have my doubts, but I have no doubt about it. i keep my doubts to myself. So that would be my advice to newbies. Love that. Thank you, Tony. Okay, Kate. I love the fact
2: we're all giving such diverse views, but they work so well together. I think my advice for a newbie would be to be totally present whenever you're working. Be focused on what you're doing. Open your eyes and actually see what's going on. Truly listen rather than just hear the words. And then afterwards, actually reflect on what happened because you can learn from everything you do as a hypnotherapist, not just the therapy, the work. Every aspect of running the business, running you as a professional, you can learn from. All of you will have come to this conference with aims in mind. If you want to get true value from it, over the days after the conference, Think back and reflect on it and notice what new insights you get because what you think of the conference today will change because you'll learn more stuff tomorrow. So it isn't about reflecting just once, it's about continually reflecting so that you draw every ounce, every gram of information out of whatever you do. That way you're your own CPD master because you're going to learn from every single experience that you have. And that would be my advice to a newbie. Thank you, Kate.
3: I loved that answer. I did love that answer. That was very good answers. Um, I, I don't know enough about, about here to know. I haven't talked to enough people, but I remember my experience um, over in America at the ND, NGH. I had the sense that most of the people <laughs> attending that conference we're kind of playing at hypnosis and we're not actually in practice. That maybe 10% of the people there were really trying to earn a living from, from being a, a hypnotist. Um, and then everybody else was sort of along for the ride. And there was this notion of, um, if I can just get the next seminar, or I can take the next workshop, or I can learn the next thing. And what I would say to you is, do it. Not the workshops and the next thing. Work with clients. So hang out your shingle. Start seeing people work with clients. You cannot learn to play the piano by reading a book about piano. You can't learn to play baseball, or whatever it is we play over here, rugby? I don't know. (laughs) Without getting out on the field and actually doing it. Like, it is a skill that you have to do. So the the first thing I would tell you is, is that. The second thing is don't have gurus and feel like there's a particular school that you have to follow. I like to be very flexible and adaptable. But do find people, colleagues, not necessarily people that want money from you, by the way, but colleagues, the, the people you can meet that are at this conference, that are not sitting at this table, and are not in front with the speaker badges on, the other people that are in the room with you that are in practice, colleagues, find people who are successful at whatever it is that you're wanting to accomplish, if that's the money part of it, the money part of it. You admire something about the way they work with clients. You like their their theoretical approach or their technique or whatever it is. Find people who are successful at whatever it is that you want and hang around with them. You are also able to find people that will tell you how you can't do it and that are not successful. I advise you not to hang around with them. Um, find people who are successful colleagues and, and develop the, the network of colleagues. I loved your answer and I think that being present in the moment is absolutely critical the active listening where mentally when someone, when a client is speaking to me, my goal is to understand what they're saying before I begin to mentally formulate my response. You think much more quickly than you can speak. You, you basically think at the speed of electricity, which is pretty much the speed of light. So you have plenty of time to listen to what's being said understand it and then begin to go back and pay attention to your own body and to your own nonverbals I can tell when I'm with a client and we're talking with each other and there's like there's a connection and we're there with each other and and we're good in waking state and I can also tell when talking is happening but but the connection is broken I can feel it in my body and I know that at the moment where the connection is broken The most important thing I have to do at that moment is shut up. Because anything else I say is very likely to do more damage than help. And just dig them into whatever the problem is at that point. And at at the rare time when you feel the connection is not there, then you want to, it's like, we're lost, all stop. And then we figure out what's going on And then we find a way to reconnect. And then we find a way to get back on track. But that intangible, i literally, you will feel it in your chest. And you will feel it in your body. And you know when you have that emotional engagement. And when you have that engagement is when change is going to happen. Whether you're doing what Erickson called ordinary waking trance, where you're doing work, change work in waking state. With a hypnotic process, you can feel the engagement with the client. It's the mirror neuron thing. We're all sending and receiving, and you're a human being, and you are not immune to that, and you feel it when it's there, and it has to have that connection. Um, And then I guess the last thing would be like the basic business stuff. Boy, I've made some bad business decisions and lost like thousands of dollars, so you know, there you go. Um, There's so many things to learn with that. Find people that have built a successful practice. Ask them. Um, And even the government around probably has instructional stuff on like, how to get your licenses and all that. Do cover those bases as well as you can. Realize you're going to make some mistakes because it's so complicated that you're going to make some mistakes. And that's the cost of doing business and you'll take a hit. But you'll come back from it and you'll be okay. And that's in the past. And you build built forward and move forward and build your practice. And it's going to be fine. Um, so there you go. I hope that was helpful. Thank you, Thank you, great. Great. Thank you so much, Adam, for having us. Thank you. Um, um, so, um, um, um,
0: we're going to start to draw it to a close. Uh, uh, I wanted to kind of like add, add two pence to that, um, in as much as um, um, whenever anybody asks me, in addition to some of the really kind of solid advice that's been given here, um, I always say um, hypnosis gives us an opportunity to do something quite incredible, which is to astonish. And I think um, um, in order to be head and shoulders... Um, in a different place and give people incredible experiences and serve them um, that you seek to astonish. Astonish, use hypnotic phenomena. Um, use your, your, your depth of education to astonish. Use the, your, your dedication to serving that individual to the, to, to the deepest, most profound way you know how. Serve those people, love them, in a way that gives them astonishing experiences. Anything uh, uh, um, that, that, that does go on to astonish an individual, will absolutely mean that you, you will thrive within your business you know, if you dedicate your, your, yourself to it. If you're going to spend an hour in the company of another individual as a therapist, why not absolutely give it your all and, and, and astonish that person and give them an experience that's not just therapeutically beneficial, but is something that they're going to speak about, they're going to communicate with, that's going to stand out in their life experience. Um, astonishing. Best piece of advice uh, uh, that, that, that I can consider giving to anybody ever. Um, thank you all. Thank you for staying with it. For those of you that stayed here. Um, um, thank you for committing some time and some energy. Um, my massive round of thanks and applause and love <laughs> to these guys here.
4: Uh,
1: then can I just say something?
4: <laughs> One minute and a half. Can we take a picture with everyone? Yeah, let's for do social that. media. Yeah, That's let's part do of that. the game. <laughs> let's do that. Um, 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 And for everybody that's watching at
0: home, thank you. Awesome. Cowabunga. Uh, We're going to do it. Thank you,
1: Shuja.